So far, we have discussed, or I've talked about, yes, to be accurate, the four ennobling truths, the fourth of which is the Eightfold Path, and the eighth of which is Samasamadhi, appropriate concentration, which the Buddha defines as the first four jhanas. And the description of the four jhanas starts with secluded from sense desires, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, and that's the abandoning of the five hindrances, which I talked about last night. So tonight I'll talk about the four jhanas in some detail. I'll read you what is probably the most detailed description of the jhanas found in the suttas. Now, it's found in lots of suttas. Uh, the jhanas appear in half the suttas of the long discourses, a third of the 152 suttas of the middle-length discourses. They, they appear quite a lot. But usually what appears is what's given here or a shortened version of what's given here. There's just not a lot of detail. Quite secluded from sense pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, one enters and remains in the first jhana, which is accompanied by initial and sustained attention to the meditation subject and filled with rapture and happiness born of seclusion. One drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with this rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by rapture and happiness. Okay, so the four factors of the first jhana are initial and a sustained attention to the meditation subject. The Pali words are vitaka and vichara. We talked about those a bit earlier. Vitaka is the beginning mental activity and vichara is sustained mental activity. Excuse me. The beginning activity of putting your attention on the breath, you're sustaining the attention on the breath, beginning to put it on the pleasant sensation, sustaining <coughs> sustaining it on the pleasant sensation, and then when the piti and sukha, which are the other two factors, arise, putting your attention on them and sustaining your attention on them, which of course means that they sustain. It says that the piti and sukha, the rapture and happiness, are born of seclusion. They arise out of the fact that you are now secluded from the hindrances. They arise out of the fact that you're secluded from distractions. They rise out of the fact that your mind has settled into what is actually its natural state. It turns out that the mind not being messed with is radiantly happy. And so by getting to access concentration and hanging out there, this underlying radiant happiness bubbles to the surface as physical rapture and emotional joy and happiness, all brought about by being secluded from any distractions or anything like that. One drenches steep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with this rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. When the first jhana first appears for you, it may seem as though it's taking place in the head, face area. Other parts of the body may or may not be involved. The upper torso is frequently reported as being involved, but not always. The spine frequently reported, but again, not always. Maybe if the PT and sukha are quite strong, the whole torso, front, back, all of it is involved. And when it's quite strong, it moves down into the arms and legs, into the hands, fingers, toes, the whole bit. 
I would say as you're learning the jhanas, don't make a big deal about feeling you have to get the piti and sukha everywhere. Just get the piti and sukha going and sustained. They are sustaining and your attention on them is sustaining. As you get more skilled with the first jhana, then you'll find it fairly easy to get the piti and sukha to spread everywhere. Although it may seem to be more intense in the area around the head and the upper torso and or the back. We have a simile that's given. Suppose a skilled bath attendant or his apprentice were to pour soap flakes into a metal basin, sprinkle them with water, and knead them into a ball so that the ball of soap flakes would be pervaded by moisture, encompassed by moisture, suffused with moisture inside and out, and yet would not trickle. In the same way, one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so there is no part of one's entire body not filled with rapture and happiness. So we get a bit of a picture of what life was like at the time of the Buddha. You didn't go to Sainsbury's and buy a bar of soap, right? You had your skilled bath attendant or his apprentice get a metal bowl and pour in just the right amount of soap flakes and just the right amount of water and mix it all together so that it becomes one homogeneous ball of soap with the water binding the soap flakes together, totally permeating the soap flakes. This is a picture of what the first jhana is like. The Water penetrating the soap flakes is the same as the rapture and happiness being throughout your body. But also, this is a fairly energetic activity. There's a lot of frenetic mixing and so forth that's going on here. And that corresponds to the fact that in the first jhana, it's a highly energized state. When the PT is quite strong, well, it can be so strong, it's like putting your finger in the electrical socket. Really, really intense. If it's that strong, you don't want to keep it around very long. You want to move on to the second jhana. But if it's not so strong, then it's possible to stay with it for an extended period, say five minutes or something like that, before moving on to the second jhana. And if you want to move to the second jhana... With the subsiding of initial and sustained attention, one enters and dwells in the second jhana, which is accompanied by internal confidence and unification of mind, and is without applied and sustained attention, and is filled with rapture and happiness born of concentration. One drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of concentration, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by rapture and happiness. Okay, so the vitaka and the vichara, the initial and sustained attention to the meditation subject, are now out of the picture. And they are replaced with, well, it says here, internal confidence and unification of mind. Perhaps a better translation is inner tranquility and unification of mind. The movement from the first jhana to the second jhana two things take place. The whole experience becomes much more tranquil and the mind collects around the experience. You become absorbed into the experience. If I have a piece of paper and I put a marble on it, and I want to keep the marble from rolling off the piece of paper, I'm going to have to pay careful attention, all right? This is what it's like in the first jhana. This is what it's like at access concentration. You've really got to sort of be paying really careful attention. It's not sort of going to stay there by itself. But as you move into the second jhana, it's like you crumple the paper up a bit so it now has a well in it, and that marble is just not going to roll off. You know, you can sort of move your hand around and it's just not going to fall out unless you turn it all the way upside down. This is the unification of mind, the becoming absorbed in the object of the second jhana. Now, 
as a practical matter, the movement from the first jhana to the second jhana is basically a foreground-background shift. When you're in the first jhana, the PT, the physical component, predominates. And the sukha, the emotional component, is more in the background. When you want to move to the second jhana, you want to do a foreground-background shift so that now the sukha predominates and the piti is in the background. As a practical matter, one way you can do that is to take, finally, a really deep breath. Remember, as you move into the first jhana, you're to focus on the pleasant sensation rather than taking a deep breath. Let go of the breath, focus on the pleasant sensation. The jhana comes and finds you. All right, now you've got all this PT and sukha. When you take a deep breath, the PT will decrease in intensity. And you can more easily focus on the emotional sense of joy and happiness, the sukha. Put your attention on the sukha, the happiness, and it comes back up in intensity, and the PT stays weaker and in the background. As I said, the energy of the PT in the first jhana may be quite intense, but even if it's not intense, there's a good bit of noticeable energy there. People describe it as bubbles or waves or stars of energy just sort of running through their body. By the time of the second jhana, the PT energy has calmed down a bit. This inner tranquility is taking over. And you're now more in a place where the energy might result in a bit of rocking or swaying or something like that. In other words, there's still some energy there. It's not still, but it's not the frenetic energy like you have when you were mixing the soap flakes. Um, The happiness that you're focused on, it's just like worldly happiness it's well like i said if if you get a birthday present and you open it and it's like wow i always wanted one of these this is great that kind of feeling only it's not generated by something external it's generated by your concentrated mind the happiness is inside you all along right i mean you can't put the happiness in I think I'll go to the store and buy myself some happiness and put it in. No, of course not. The the capacity to be happy is there. There just needs to be something to trigger it. So instead of triggering it via some external thing like the perfect birthday present, you trigger it with your concentrated mind and you put your attention on that happiness. Now the happiness itself may not be all that steady. The intensity level may sort of drift up and down a bit. Uh, Over the course of three or four breaths, it might come up and then drop down a bit and then come back up again. All right, so, but doesn't matter. That's the way it manifests. Again, the unsteady intensity of the happiness is partially due to the piti that's there. So just hang out with this experience, just sitting there being happy. The the first jhana is an intense enough experience that it probably will make you smile big enough so that your teeth show, all right? You know, it's pretty good, yeah? Okay, the second jhana You've got a definite smile on your face, but maybe no teeth showing, right? So the energy has dropped down a bit, but you're still pretty happy. There's a simile for the second jhana. Thank you. Suppose there were a deep lake whose waters welled up from below, and it would have no inlet for water from the east, west, north, or south, nor would it be refilled from time to time with showers of rain. And yet a current of cool water welling up from within the lake would drench, steep, saturate, and suffuse the whole lake so there would be no part of that entire lake which is not suffused with the cool water. In the same way, 
One drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of concentration. So there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by this rapture and happiness. Now I've got to figure out how to open it. Um, So, the picture that we have is of a lake far up in the mountains. No streams coming into it, not even any showers of rain. And yet at the bottom of that lake, there's a spring of cool, clear water. This spring water upwells and, given enough time, totally permeates the lake. There's no part of the lake that's not filled with the water that's come out of the spring. This picture is actually an amazingly accurate depiction of what the second jhana feels like. There's this upwelling of joy, of happiness, of sukha. And furthermore, it seems that it's dropped down. The, as you move from the first jhana to the second jhana, the location of the experience seems to drop more towards the heart area for most people. And that this sukha, this happiness, is an upwelling from the heart, like a spring, and it's just continually upwelling. Now, the picture isn't a still picture, but it doesn't have the frenetic energy of mixing the soap flakes. It's a more calm, a more tranquil picture as the water comes out of the spring and totally permeates the lake. So, after arriving in the second jhana, your focus is now on the sense of happiness. You're Your object of attention is the emotion of happiness, of joy. I say happiness or joy. Some people describe it as being like happiness. Some people describe it as like being like joy. Um, Whatever. Whichever one it seems like to you, that's the right one. So you spend some time hanging out just being happy. Um, learn to stabilize the experience and keep it for 10 to 15 minutes. Where, all right, you're there, you know you're there, and you can stay there. Not a bad place to hang out. I mean, after all, you're pretty happy about it. So, further, with the fading away of rapture, one enters and dwells in equanimity, mindful and clearly comprehending, and experiences happiness with the body. Thus one enters and dwells in the third jhana, of which the noble ones declare, one dwells happily with equanimity and mindfulness. One drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the happiness free from rapture, so there is no part of one's entire body which is not suffused by this happiness. Okay, so the piti is gone. That's the first thing. It fades away. And there is equanimity, mindfulness, and clear comprehension. These seem to already be there. One remains with these. They seem to grow stronger as you enter this state. And one experiences happiness with the body. So you're still aware of the body. I mean, if you're going to drench, steep, saturate, and suffuse your body with anything, you need to have some awareness of the body. So these states are not so deep that you've lost total external awareness. You're still aware, at least, of your body. And one dwells happily with equanimity and mindfulness. So what is equanimous happiness? Well, the best way to describe it would be with the word contentment. It's a state of wishlessness. It's a state of deep satisfaction. Satisfaction so complete that if Mick Jagger had been practicing the third jhana, he wouldn't be able to sing that song. 
right? You got real solid satisfaction here. As a practical matter, all right, you're in the second jhana and you're focused on the sukha, the joy, the happiness. To move to the third jhana, let the happiness begin decreasing in intensity, not be quite so strong, getting a bit weaker. And as that's happening, remember a time when you were very contented. You'd just eaten the perfect meal. You didn't overeat, and you don't have to wash the dishes. You know, just like, ah. I mean, whatever comes to mind, whatever example you come up with. Grab the memory, pluck the feeling of contentment out of the memory, and don't get caught up in the story around the memory. Don't go asking for recipes or anything like that, okay? So just a brief memory that includes a feeling of contentment and pull that contentment out. All right, so you're now letting the intensity of the sukha of the second jhana decrease. You have this memory and you pull the contented feeling out and now the sukha has transformed into that feeling of contentment. Stay focused on the feeling of contentment and just hang out with it. Now, because the piti has gone away, this is a very still place. There's no sense of movement. If there's some piti left, you didn't make it all the way to the third jhana. You might have calmed down the sukha, but you're still in the second jhana if there's any remnants of piti. So all of the piti has to be gone for it to be the third jhana, by definition. We have a simile, of course. Suppose in a lotus pond there were blue, white, or red lotuses that have been born in the water, grow in the water, and never rise up above the water, but flourish immersed in the water. From their tips to their roots, they would be drenched, steep, saturated, and suffused with the water, so there would be no part of those lotuses not suffused with water. In the same way, one drenches, steep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with a happiness free from rapture, so there is no part of one's body not filled with happiness. Okay, so a lotus pond, where there are lotuses coming up out of the mud, but not above the surface of the water. They're leading their whole lives underwater, completely permeated with water from tips to roots. They're not out waving around in the breeze. This is a very still picture, and there is definitely a sense of stillness, no movement in the third jhana. The senses of movement in the first and second jhana are due to the experience of piti. And this is given with the simile of mixing the soap flakes and with the upwelling of the water from the spring. But now it's a still picture, and that accurately depicts the stillness of the third jhana. So, again, you're focused on this emotional sense now of contentment, and you want to learn to maintain this for, let's say, 10 to 15 minutes. And then you've got good skill in it, and you can try moving on to the fourth jhana. Further, with the abandoning of pleasure and pain, and with the previous passing away of joy and grief, one enters and remains in the fourth jhana, which is neither pleasant nor painful and contains mindfulness fully purified by equanimity. One sits suffusing one's body with a pure, bright mind, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by a pure, bright mind. Okay. So the abandoning of pleasure and pain and the previous passing away of joy and grief. Now, don't mistake this to think that there was pain or grief in any of the previous jhanas. What's being pointed at is that your mind needs to go to a very neutral state, a very equanimous state. There certainly was pleasure in the first three jhanas, Even at the level of the third jhana, the sense of contentment is a pleasant state of mind. And there was joy in the earlier jhanas, and that now has 
faded as you get to the third jhana, and there's just contentment left. But what's being pointed to here is that you move to a place of very emotionally neutral. No pleasure, no pain, no joy, no sorrow. Just a quiet equanimity, a place of quiet stillness. The jhana is described as neither pleasant nor painful, and it contains mindfulness fully purified by equanimity. The experience is one of a quiet stillness. Ayakima described the third jhana as sometimes feeling like you're sitting in the mouth of a well. You got a well and you're just a little below the surface of it. You're feeling somewhat isolated from the world around you. Okay, to get to the fourth jhana, let go and drop down the well. There's a more of a letting go that has to take place in order to move from the third jhana to the fourth jhana. So anything you're hanging on to, let go of it. The first thing to let go of is the sense of pleasure in the third jhana. When you let go of that sense of pleasure, there probably will be a sense of things starting to drop, slowly sinking down. It doesn't drop like something in free fall. It more like drifts down. So you're drifting down the well. You're like sinking to the bottom of the swimming pool as opposed to free-falling out of an airplane. So let go of the pleasure of the third jhana. Just simply let it go and go with the sinking feeling. Put your attention on that sense of things sinking down and just stay with that sense of things sinking down. And eventually it will come to rest in a quiet still place. Um, No sense of motion and quiet. Your mind is very quiet and if your concentration is quite strong, then there may be even some sense of the sounds are further away or if your concentration is really strong, you don't even notice the sounds. Of course, if you listen to see if you're noticing the sounds, you'll notice the sounds. So basically focus on the quiet stillness and just hang out there. We have a simile. Suppose a man were to be sitting covered from the head down by a white cloth so that there would be no part of his entire body not suffused by that white cloth. In the same way, one sits suffusing one's body with a pure, bright mind, so there is no part of one's entire body not suffused by a pure, bright mind. When you hear the phrase pure, bright mind, you might think that there's a brightness in the fourth jhana. But most people report experiencing the fourth jhana as dark as black. There's a purity there. It's pure in the sense that there's not much mental activity. And if there is any at all, it's probably commenting on, yeah, this is good, very still, yeah, quiet. So a lot of purity there. But the thing about the pure bright mind really puzzled me. And in 2006... I went on a retreat at the Forest Refuge in Barrie, Massachusetts with the Venerable Pau Auk. Venerable Pau Auk is a jhana master from southern Burma. And he teaches very, very deep states of concentration. He's teaching the jhanas as they are described in the Vasudhimaga. I mentioned this earlier. The Vasudhimaga describes states that are clearly more deeply concentrated than what's being described here. For example, you notice the reference to the body. One sits suffusing one's body with a pure, bright mind in the fourth jhana. So you're still aware of the body, whereas in the Vasudhimaga, your concentration is so extreme that you're not even aware of your body, let alone anything else around you. 
So I went on this retreat. I had read his book, Knowing and Seeing. I had talked to Westerners that had been at his monastery in Burma. And the consensus seemed to be that if you wanted to learn his method, you needed to spend at least six months. And I was going to be there for a month, so I went with no expectations of experiencing his jhanas. But I did learn a lot about concentration. One of the things that he taught me was the numbering the breaths between the out-breath and the in-breath when you're doing the counting, which I found to be very helpful. But he also, after a few days, put me to doing very long sittings, three or four hours. Uh, since I was sitting in a chair, it wasn't terribly painful, and I was able to get very concentrated. What he really wanted me to do was get to what I'm calling access concentration, where the thoughts have pretty much receded into the background or gone away completely by using mindfulness of breathing and stay there. Just stay there. Now, he teaches using the nimitta. The word nimitta means sign. You know, like entering Newton Abbott, that's a sign, right? Or your breath getting very shallow, that's a sign of good concentration. But the word nimitta has been taken over in the later commentaries to refer to a circle of light that appears. When you're concentrated enough, this circle might appear. And in the Vasudhimaga, they make a big deal about the nimitta showing up. But it takes quite deep states of concentration for that to happen. So basically I'm sitting there hanging out in access concentration, waiting for the nimitta to show up. Um, occasionally I'd get the preliminary nimitta. I could hold it, I think probably the longest time was maybe 20 minutes. But you need to hold the preliminary nimitta for an hour. And then maybe you get the intermediate nimitta. And then if you can hold that one for an hour, maybe you get the real nimitta. And then if you hold that one for an hour, then you're at his version of access concentration, and maybe you can enter the first jhana. I mean, we're talking serious levels of concentration. So I didn't get there. But I got pretty concentrated. I mean, you sit there just following your breath in access concentration, my definition, for you know, two, three, four hours, you get concentrated. And so I'm working on his stuff, and I have my little timer with me, so, you know, I, I know I've done my four hours that I'm supposed to be doing. And then it was like, okay, let's play with this concentration. Now, I discovered early on that I had to keep a very neutral expression on my face. Otherwise, this very strong PT would come up. I asked him about it. He said, that's gross PT. Do not let that happen. Right? <laughs> so in order to not let that happen, I had to have a very neutral expression. If I smiled, boom, huge, huge waves of PT. So, okay, a little bit of sense of PT in the background. You know, it's kind of buzzy back there, but nothing strong. All right, the timer goes off. My four hours are up. I'm going to smile. As soon as I did, there would be this huge burst of PT. I mean, I, I was a little worried my head was going to pop off. It was violently shaking. And it would last 20 seconds or so, and then it would calm down. And then there'd be all this sukha. And then a minute later, here it comes again, really strong. And pretty quickly, it settled into what I would describe as the second jhana. Still occasional bursts of piti, but the sukha was enormously strong. I didn't have to think about drenching, steeping, saturating, and suffusing my body. It wasn't like, come on, let's get the sukha down here. I was dipped in a vat of sukha. And there was sukha, you know, foot and a half around my body. Half a meter out, there's sukha, right? And my mind was totally into the experience. It wasn't going anywhere. I didn't have to try and keep it from becoming distracted. It just was there, absorbed into 
the experience of sukha with occasional bursts of piti. Now, I discovered that I just had to sit there in the second jhana being really happy. I couldn't move on to the third because the piti would keep coming back, you know, and I had to let it fade away, and that would take 15 to 20 minutes estimating. And then eventually it would start calming down, and I'd get smaller bursts of PT, not the violent shaking, but just, you know, a little bit of PT, and then it would go away. And then eventually the intensity level of the sukha all on its own would just slide over into the contentment, and I would find myself in what I call the third jhana. Only again, no having to work to move the contentment down into all parts, dumped into a vat of contentment, just there. And once again, I had to wait. I could not move intentionally onto the fourth jhana. I mean, there was just too much contentment. I couldn't let it go until about five to ten minutes had passed. And then it would sort of start fading away, and it would just drop off into this very neutral place. But the interesting thing now, this indeed felt like the fourth jhana. There was that sense of quiet stillness. But behind my eyes, it was bright white. It was amazingly bright. It was like I was sitting in the middle of a field on a very sunny day, with a white sheet over me and my eyes open. It was that bright white, just exactly like the simile, right? A man covered from the head down by a white cloth, except my eyes were closed and there was no feeling of any cloth, but the whiteness was there. So the conclusion I would draw from this is that if your concentration is moderate, what you can expect to experience on, say, a 10-day retreat, then probably the fourth jhana will be dark. But if your concentration is very strong, then the fourth jhana might be bright white. But in both instances, it's a quiet stillness, like you've gone deep down into the well. Or third jhana, you're in the mouth of a cave, and the fourth jhana, you're deep down inside the mountain. Things are very quiet and very still. It's a... It's a very calm place and very neutral. It's a great place to hang out. So that's the four jhanas, the first four, the ones that the Buddha said were sama samadhi, appropriate concentration. Often what you find after a description of the jhanas is something like the following. When one's mind is thus concentrated, pure and bright, unblemished, free from defects, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, one directs and inclines it to knowledge and vision. One understands thus. This is my body, having material form, composed of the four primary elements, originating from mother and father, built up out of rice and gruel, impermanent, subject to rubbing and pressing, to dissolution and dispersion. And this is my consciousness, supported by it and bound up with it. The purpose of jhanas is to generate a mind that is concentrated, pure and bright, unblemished, free from defects, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, that you can incline and direct to knowledge and vision of what's actually happening, what's really going on. The jhanas are a warm-up exercise for insight practice. So having been in these states, you have this concentrated, sharp mind, and then you incline and direct it to examining your body, and your mind. Now, four foundations of mindfulness. One part body, three parts mind. Right? The jhanas are the preliminary practice for doing satipatthana practice, for doing the various practices that are given in the four foundations of mindfulness. 
getting enlightened is a difficult task. It's not easy going. If you wanted to cut this table in two and you had a butter knife, you could do it. It'd be hard work. You take that butter knife and you just start, you know, pressing and cutting and you'll get there. But it would go a lot faster, a lot easier if you get out of whetstone and start sharpening up that knife, right? Put an edge on it. Once it's sharp, you'll cut a lot faster. You'll make up all the time you wasted sharpening. I mean, when you're sharpening, you're not making any progress for cutting the table in two. Right? But it's still a useful thing to do. All right? And then you cut. Of course, it gets dull. You've got to sharpen again. And you cut some more. And it would be a lot easier. I mean, it's still not easy, but it would be a lot easier to cut the table in two with a sharp knife, even if you started with a very dull one. This is what the jhanas are about. They're sharpening your mind so that you have penetrating insight. In the Tibetan tradition, the bodhisattva of wisdom is Manjushri. Manjushri is often depicted with a sword in his hand that he uses to cut the bonds of ignorance. Jhana practice is simply sharpening Manjushri's sword. Just sharpening the sword isn't enough. You don't cut any bonds of ignorance. You've still got to wield the sword. Right? And if you just sit there sharpening and you never get around to wielding, eventually, well, you've got no sword left. You sharpened it into nothing. Right? So it's important. Get it sharp. Wield it. When it gets dull again, sharpen it up. Go wield it. This is basically what we're aiming to do with the jhana practice. Get our minds prepared for deeply investigating the nature of reality. Questions? Comments? Okay, so with limited time available, how do you judge which is more beneficial to hang out in access in order to deepen the concentration that you move into the jhanas with or to move to the jhanas and cycle through? When you're first learning the jhanas, don't worry about getting them really deep. I say, you know, five to 15 minutes in access. That's probably sufficient so that you can start learning these states. Once you begin to get the skill where you're not just stumbling in, but you know, okay, this is what I do and this is how I get in and this is how I move to the next, right, and you've got some skill with it, that's the time, if you want to, to start cranking up the access concentration. But part of it is also dependent on how long your sitting is going to be. I mean, if you're doing an hour-long sitting, you don't want to spend an hour in access concentration because then you've got zero time for the jhanas or insight practice. So if you're sitting for an hour and you already know the jhanas, you're skilled in them, I'd say you probably want to spend about half the time working with concentration and half the time with insight. So that gives you 30 minutes. So if you spend 15 minutes in access and maybe 15 minutes moving through the jhanas, that's probably about all you can pull off in an hour-long sitting. If you're going to take it deeper, you're probably going to need longer sittings. At the time of the Buddha judging from what you find in the suttas, the monks and nuns would go on alms round and then they would come back and they would eat the midday meal. Now I'm guessing the midday meal was probably eaten somewhere around 10 or 11 in the morning, maybe even as early as 9 o'clock. When they finished eating, they would then go for the day's abiding. They'd go someplace like into the woods and they would meditate until it got dark. And you get the impression they would go and they would just sit and meditate straight through. They weren't doing 45-minute sitting, 45-minute walking. Right? They grew up in a culture that didn't have chairs, sitting cross-legged 
was relatively easy for them, much easier for them than for us. And so they just go meditate for a long time. And so they had the chance to build the very deeper, much deeper concentration so that they could get into the jhanas in a deeper way. So how much time to spend in access? How much time you got for the sitting, basically? Well, when I first started stumbling into the first jhana, it made a big difference because I switched from meditating because I knew it was good for me to meditating because I wanted to meditate. Right? So that was the first real breakthrough. And it was because I was enjoying these, these states. I mean, even if I didn't get them all the time, when they showed up, it was like, wow, this is nice. Right? So that was the first thing. After I had learned more of them, I mean, I, I really only knew the first one. Occasionally I'd stumble into the second, but I didn't even know it was the second. So after I had learned them and knew what they were and was experiencing these states, I can't really say that it, I saw any immediate change. But, so that was 1990 on a 10-day retreat with Ayakema. And then a year later in 1991, I learned the remaining jhanas, and that was during a one-week retreat, which was followed the next day by a one-month retreat. So going into this one-month retreat, I knew all eight jhanas, and Ayakema fairly quickly put me to work doing insight practice. I remember the interview very, very clearly. So I go in, and I'm, you know, I'm, I've got the jhanas down, and she says, okay, well, now you've got to do insight practice uh, you know, before the end of the sitting. And I, my response was, but, but, but it takes me a long time to go through the jhanas. She says, do it faster. <laughs> yes, ma'am, I'll go try that right away. I mean, she was the kind of person that when she told you to do something, it was like, yes, ma'am, I'll go try that right away. So I, instead of taking an hour to move through all eight jhanas, I was doing it in 25, 30 minutes and then taking the rest of the sitting to do the various insight practices that she began assigning me, the ones I'll be talking about here. And I was totally astonished at the amount of insight that came to me during that month-long retreat. I said beforehand, and I've been practicing for six years before this retreat, the amount of insight I'd gotten was like, well, you get in a car, right? And, and you got the turn signal indicator and, and you push it up, it blinks over here. You push it down, it blinks over there. You know, that's the sum total of my six years of insight. Well, after doing insight practice for a month in the post-Jonic state of mind, I backed the car out of the parking lot and been around the block. I hadn't been on any freeways yet, but, you know... It was remarkable how much more of the Buddha's teaching I understood. Instead of just having a bunch of random things that I sort of knew, it all began to fit into a coherent pattern. And when I went home from that retreat, my friends said they could see a difference. I mean, I, I was changed. It had definitely made a noticeable impact. And I was found myself much more dedicated to the path. So... I wouldn't say the jhanas and being in these happy, joyful states are what changed me, but the insights I got with the concentrated mind, that was what really changed me. Through understanding that 
can actually let go. It just seems that sometimes it can go quite quick. It's not so much that if you right. concentrate in the mind, you just recognize that you can let go. Mm-hmm. The key thing is that letting go into the experience. Right. But in order to have a sustained experience, particularly sustained in two, three, four, you're going to need the concentration. So yeah, it's quite possible to generate the PT, which will take you into the first jhana, and you're there, and it's genuine PT, and it's genuine first jhana, and you move to the second jhana, and you fall right out into distraction. I have had that happen to me many times. So, although most people, in order to find the skill to enter the jhana at will, are going to need a certain basic level of concentration, it is possible to just bring the PT right up. But everybody's going to need the concentration in order to sustain jhanas 2, 3, and 4. Right. It's and sometimes the mind is all over the place. And like staying with breath, it's it can be quite boring and painful. But when there is understanding or how come I'm in that state, mm-hmm. the whole thing seems to quicken up. And if there's real good understanding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely the the PT brings more of a, okay, yeah, this is good stuff. One of the translations of PT is interest. And so when the PT is arising, it can bring a lot more interest into the, the meditation. And I guess the thing to do then would be then to stabilize there, mm-hmm. to kind of work at. Right. It's a bit clearer, so speak with it. Yeah. You're going to, in order to take it beyond just the PT and get it to where you're really generating that sharp, clear mind, it is going to be necessary to generate some concentration. And, yeah, you just got to do some of that work. And, yeah, doing two hours of meditation a day is is a wonderful thing if you can do it, but I haven't managed to pull it off much recently. I haven't managed to pull it off much ever. It's a difficult thing. Each of the jhanas would have insights associated with it, yes. So although the jhana practice is a samatha practice, a shamatha practice, uh, there's still going to be insights that arise from each of the jhanas. And no, I won't tell you what they are. It's going to be much more fun for you to discover them yourself. They'll have a bigger impact. So yes, you will get some insights along the way. But the really big, deep, transformative insights, the insights into impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self, will arise from the Vipassana practice, the insight practices themselves. It'd be things like... Yeah, I mean, if an insight comes along, yeah, don't just, oh, wrong wrong time. Yeah, pay attention to the insight. But there's not a lot you can do to try and make the insights come up, although it is helpful to notice that they have their causes and conditions, they're impermanent, etc., as they fade away. But what I find is when I'm in one of these jhanic states, I can't do jhana practice and maintain... I mean, do insight practice and maintain the jhana. If I start doing insight practice, which is what I do when I've, you know, got the jhanas going and I'm I'm at number four and now it's time for insight, I just start doing the insight practice, the jhana fades away. So it's a choice of one or the other, although you will find teachers that tell you to do the insight practice in the jhana. But for me, what I find is I start doing, I got the jhana going, I start doing the insight practice, and the jhana fades away. It's no big deal. It's done its thing. You know, when you're cutting with a knife, you don't have to keep sharpening while you're cutting, sort of thing. But if an insight arises, yeah, 
pay attention to it. Right. Yeah, the jhana has done its work. It's gotten you that mind that's concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy. All right? That's all you need. Now you do the insight practice. The jhana fades out, but you just keep going with the insight practice. The Doing the jhanas or experiencing the jhanas has a tendency to take your normal ego functioning and get it really quiet. Get your ego, go sit in the corner, shut up. Right? So when you come out of the jhanas, you are in a state that is much less egocentric. Our usual way of interacting with the world is in terms of, can I eat it? Will it eat me? Okay, we get a little more sophisticated than that. But it's basically looking at, is this something I want to get hold of or is this something I need to push away? Notice I am the central feature in this. Well, despite the fact that it feels like I am the center of the universe, I really am not the center of the universe. So if I'm looking at the world with an ego-centered perspective, I'm not going to see what's really happening. Having gotten the ego quiet, I mean, everybody's aware you think yourself up, you emote yourself up. There's not really something there. So being this concentrated, you're not thinking and emoting yourself up, so it's gotten quiet. You come out of this very concentrated state, your ego doesn't immediately pop back up, usually. I mean, it might be, well, that was good, I'm a really good, but hopefully that doesn't happen, okay? So, you know, you're just starting your insight practice, and you're looking at the world from a much less egocentric perspective. You've taken off the ego-colored glasses. When you look at the world not from an egocentric perspective, you certainly have a much better chance of seeing what's really there. So you got the job done with the jhanas, okay, now just do the insight practice. The jhanas aren't necessary anymore until the next sitting. Ayakema's definition of an insight was the understood experience. Okay? So the intellectual is the understanding. So now you're actually able to, to have the experience of the impermanent, unsatisfactory, empty nature of the world around you. So it's at a deeper level. It's not just head, it's heart and head and fully integrated. So you have the understanding. I mean, you can get that out of a book. But, well, let's say you've never eaten a mango, right? And somebody says, oh, I'll tell you all about a mango. It's a fruit. It's, it's orange. It's got a peel. You peel it off. It's very juicy inside. There's a big stone in the middle. You don't eat the stone. You eat the juicy flesh. It's really sweet. It's delicious. Do you know what a mango is? No, you think it's a peach, Right? So you have the intellectual understanding, but you haven't had the experience. If you eat a mango, but nobody ever tells you it's a mango, you have the experience, but you don't have the understanding. You still don't know what a mango is, even though you've tasted it. So you actually have to bite into what you know is a mango to really have the insight into what a mango is. So this is what we're aiming at, is the understood experience. And there are lots of ways to get that. There's contemplating the five daily reflections. There's choiceless awareness. There's, well, anything that you think of when you think of vipassana is a method to get there. You just get there faster and deeper with a very concentrated mind.
Yeah, it would be really interesting to know. My guess is that, you know, there there's definite measurable brain chemical changes that are happening. I had a friend in Seattle. He was a student. That's how I met him. But we wound up being really good friends. He was uh, a medical doctor, a general practitioner. And I said, you know, I really want to find out what's going on in my brain when I'm doing these jhanas. And he said, well, you know, I got some friends at the University of Washington at the medical school in Seattle. I'll see what I can do. And so we wound up setting up a program for me to meditate, do the jhanas. And the first thing we did was an EEG, a bonnet on my head to measure, you know, surface areas that are lighting up. And that worked fairly well. Um, Still kind of tricky. I mean, you're sitting there with this thing on your head, and there's four guys in the other room watching you meditate. (laughs) You can't fake it. So a little performance anxiety, shall we say. And so we have some good data from that. I did several runs of those. Then they had an fMRI there a functional magnetic resonance inferometer. Um, MRI takes a snapshot of your brain. fMRI takes a movie of your brain. Big tube, they slide you in, and then you meditate. (laughs) The problem is an fMRI is rather noisy. Imagine being slid into a metal tube and some guy coming up with a hammer and just pounding away on the outside while you're meditating. Furthermore, you can't move your head at all. It's locked into a, you know, with a cage to keep you from moving it. It wasn't the best place to meditate. (laughs) We did get a few runs of some of the jhanas, but it wasn't, they were used to doing like 10 minute runs. (laughs) I couldn't do the jhanas in 10 minutes, right? So I needed like a 45-minute run. And one time we got a good 30-minute run. And so we have the data from that. The unfortunate thing is that my friend came down with brain cancer and died. And so the the whole project stopped because he was really the guy driving it. But um, about a year ago, a former professor of neuro... Uh, science from the University of California at Davis, not far from where I live, uh, contacted me. He was curious about the jhanas. He was studying what goes on in the brain, and we've revived that particular project. And there's actually now a paper on my website that you can read. You can see pictures of my brain on jhanas, (laughs) okay, about what they've discovered with the EEG, We've just gotten the fMRI study that went fairly well, and he's busy analyzing that data, and he plans to present the two of them combined at a conference in San Francisco in March. He presented the EEG stuff at the Mind Life conference in Chicago in June. So there's a little bit going. But before my friend Doug died, the next thing we had planned was to do a blood draw. So I would put an IV in before I started meditating, right? And then when I signaled I was in a jhana, then they'd just take some blood and set it aside, you know, as I moved through each of the jhanas. And then they would analyze to see what sort of dopamine or neurotransmitters or whatnot were showing up in my bloodstream. So we'll probably do that at some point. And, of course, they want to test more than one person. So if any of you are interested and are going to be in, on the west coast of the United States, do let me know and we'll uh, let you meditate for science. But at the moment, we don't know exactly what the neurochemical things are. Although, one of there's two guys that are the principal investigators, but they have another friend, and he was looking at the readouts from the EEG, and he was saying, oh, yeah, this probably means that you've got a lot of dopamine coming out, right? So um, he was able to tell from the pattern 
that was showing up in the EEG, some hint of what maybe the neurochemicals were that was that were generating that pattern. So yeah, stay tuned. We'll see what happens. Anything else? <laughs> yeah. Right, but we're using it in everyday life with a very busy brain. Our minds are just full of stuff. And so we smile and, yeah, not much happens. Actually, it's happening. Uh, smiling generates endorphins. Okay, so when you're quiet, you smile, you generate some endorphins. Endorphins make you feel good. That makes you smile. That generates some more endorphins, right? So you got the feedback loop going. So actually, the act of smiling is generating some of those brain chemicals. I'm sure that they'll find endorphins. I mean, it's just got to be certain in the first few jhanas that there's endorphins going on. It's just a big endorphin hit. And so the act of smiling is generating the endorphins to set up that positive feedback loop, and off you go. Yeah, pretty amazing. Am I addicted to the jhanas? Not anymore. <laughs> when I first started experiencing the first jhana, yeah. I mean, I was looking for that hit every time I meditated. And if I got it, great. And if I didn't get it, oh, maybe next time. But after about 18 months, it was like, okay, so when I meditate, I get high there's got to be more to meditation than just getting high. Come on, what, what's next? I remember describing it to several teachers. It's, I, I would say, it's like I found the door to the magic castle, and I know how to open the door and go in the first room. And I wander around in there for about 10 minutes, and then I find myself back outside. I know there's more rooms here. How do I get into the other rooms? Well, it turned out that there was a secret door under the rug. You pick up the rug and you open and you go down, right? I was trying to find it behind the fireplace. I was looking in the wrong places. I didn't know what I was doing. So then, once I got to learning the other jhanas, I wouldn't say I was addicted, but I was certainly intrigued and spending most of my time playing with the jhanas. But then, when Ayakema put me to work doing insight practice in the post-jhanic state, and the insights came flooding in. That was so much more rewarding, so much more interesting than any state I had been in, and end of addiction. So there, there can be a tendency to get hooked on these states, but luckily we're Westerners. We have short attention spans, and so you'll get over it. And... My job is to see if you are indeed getting addicted to the jhanas and to push you to do insight practice. I'll let you pretty much play with the jhanas for the first four, but once you get number four, it's like, okay, you've got to do some insight now. And that'll, that will cure your addiction. So, okay. I think it's time for a break, a short break, and then we'll do meta.